Welcome to the Archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Are you or do you know someone who's tired of endlessly negotiating with a five-year-old? How about taking a three-year-old to a restaurant? Children are too often seen and treated as small adults, dressed as adults, and sometimes have their lives planned out for them to be as busy as adults. Treating children as people older than they are overlooks the child's cognitive abilities. This can lead to an unsatisfying and sometimes traumatic relationship between the child and the parents. Parents in charge, setting healthy, loving boundaries for you and your child, was written by Dr. Dana Chittical in 2002. She's a child psychologist near Los Angeles, California. Dr. Chittical argues that the developing brain of toddlers does not give them the capacity to respond to being placed on equal ground with their parents. She encourages parents to assume their rightful role of authority. I spoke with Dr. Dana Chittical in the winter of 2002 from her office in Southern California. We began our conversation by talking about the developing brain of young children. I asked her what the brain of a young child is able to assess and not able to assess. Well, I think it's such an important question. Um, And one of the things that I think it's tempting for us to do is to look at children and see them as small adults. I mean, I think we even dress them that way these days and schedule them in activities as if they're kind of little people with day planners. But in fact, um, I think it's instructive to realize that children don't just have little general practitioners. They have pediatricians, which means that their systems need to be understood as functioning differently than the systems of older people. So along those lines, their brains function differently, too. They're in the dynamic process of development. So one of the things to understand about what brains can and can't understand in toddlerhood has to do with the development of abstract thinking. Um, Abstract or inferential thought allows us to hear something and understand that it can have more than one meaning. So this is also called concrete thinking. So, for example, if I say to you, well, what's concrete thinking? You say, oh, concrete is this kind of a solid, you know, unyielding substance, so it must have something to do with thinking that doesn't yield. But if you ask that question of a concrete thinker, I think the only thing they might be able to tell you is it means thinking about concrete, and they might not even know what concrete is. So why this is critically important in the relationship between parents and children is if you understand that toddlers don't make inferences and that they're very concrete in their thinking, it informs how you need to approach them in parenting. So let me give you an example. Um, If you're at the park with your three-year-old and you want to leave, the last thing you would want to say is, Karen, we need to go now, okay? Because, in fact, what you have just done, you think you've given a directive, but remember, your toddler doesn't make inferences, and she's just heard that a favor has been asked of her, an, an invitation has been issued, and she's really well within her neurodevelopmental rights, to say to you, no, or to just keep playing. You're giving a choice that you, uh, uh, when you actually have to leave. Yeah, you've just said to her, okay, and she says, "Mm, no, in in her own mind, and she keeps playing. Now, the problem here is that um, parents don't necessarily realize that they haven't been direct, and in fact, oftentimes think that they have been direct, and they start to take very personally the fact that Karen has not moved a muscle. 
and they start to see her as being oppositional and difficult, and you can see how so much conflict can thrive in soil like this, and it's relatively easily remedied. Instead of saying to a three-year-old, Karen, we need to go now, okay, you say, Karen, we're leaving the park. Pick up your shovel and bring it to me. You can say please if you want. Um, the idea there is that now Karen knows what to do. You've just issued a very clear directive, and that's something that her mind can understand based upon her level of development. And you can see how, how clearly that puts the behavior into focus. Now, if she doesn't come to you, uh, it's clear that she's either not heard you or is, is uh, choosing not to follow what you're, you're saying, and you have to, of course, deal with that. Um, but chances are she is going to uh, be more accommodating because you've made clear to her what's expected. So it's the background, it's the inability uh, or the lack of having a background where they can look and see what's there, uh, a field of experience? Just because you and I have lived through life and our brains have had a lot of time to develop, we have the ability to understand that things aren't exactly as they appear, or um, things, again, things can have more than one meaning at once. So if I say to you, hey, uh, um, we, we need to go now, all right, that you understand that means, okay, we got to go. And uh, obviously, if you have a reason not to, you can say, oh, you know what, actually, I need to pay my bill or whatever you know, situation we're in. Um, but children don't understand that you've actually just told them to do something. And much, I think the problem here is that in, in our current culture of parenting, people who are parenting young children now, we tend to think of ourselves as being kinder by being a little softer about it. Hey, honey, we need to go now. Okay, it's kind of egalitarian, you know, we're all on equal ground, which in fact we're not. Um, the problem here is I don't think it's a kindness to be indirect with a child and then hold her accountable for taking up slack and reaching a conclusion about something that was never made clear to her in the first place. And this seems to be so much of what's going on in relationships between parents and their young children. All of these uh, parents kind of misreading what a child's behavior means, thinking that it's willfulness or defiance, when in fact it may simply be a lack of understanding and a parent's need to modify her behavior or his behavior to be clearer. Is this a new phenomenon, or in your studies have you found that uh, it's been this way for a long time in our culture? Uh, you mean the, the okay part? That's right. Yeah, I, I didn't know if you were talking about the, the brain development. That, I think, has been going on for, for a long, long time this way. Um, I think it is a new development, and I think um, what, you know, when we look back to a generation ago when we were being parented, I think that there was a culturally agreed-upon role that parents had with children. Um, parents knew who they were in relation to their children. I mean, there were culturally agreed-upon roles for more than parents and children. You know, there were who women were allowed to be and weren't allowed to be, who men were expected to be and what they couldn't do. So then we had the 60s, and we had some other cultural changes that have happened in the interim, and now this leaves us free to kind of do our own thing. And um, I think a lot of uh, parents are maybe reacting against ways that they were parented in the past, the danger there being that when you're doing something in reaction to how it was done before, there's not a lot of thinking that goes on. Um, but I do think that it is a relatively new phenomenon. And one of the things that I think is, uh, needs to happen is that parents need to recognize that in the absence of an old structure uh, that everybody, with some exceptions obviously, subscribe to, in the absence of that old culturally agreed upon role about who parents were in relation to children, we can need to come up with a new structure. We can't just kind of do our own thing and kind of go by the seat of our pants and kind of react to things as they come up. We really need to be doing some thinking about who parents are in relation to children, define it for ourselves, kind of come up with a mission statement. Uh, well, when you, you say uh, a reaction to how things were done in the past often does not include a lot of thinking, 
how can a person identify that that is what is occurring in relationship to their child and begin to look at it from a broader perspective? Yeah, good question. Um, I think first of all is, uh, you know, actually the first chapter of Parents in Charge is um, all about who you are as a parent, and it makes the point that parenting is a relationship. It's not uh, something you can do alone. It implies that there is a relationship going on between a parent and a child, at least one parent, at least one child. And it doesn't have to be a biological parent. I mean, parents in charge applies whether you are um, a single parent, biological parent, foster parent, adoptive parent, uncle who cares for a nephew, any time that an adult is in a caregiving relationship to a child. So the thing to recognize is that as we, uh, how we have developed to become the parents who we are um, is in large part in relation to how our parents parented us, just as we are going to be pivotally important in the lives of our children, and they are taking in aspects of our thoughts, feelings, ideas, wishes. We are communicating to them so much more than we know that they could possibly uh, integrate. So the same thing happened in our relationships with our parents. I want to ask you about that. Um the thoughts, feelings, and actions communicating so much more than they're able to integrate? Um, well, or so much more than we think they can, that, that babies can, that babies are picking up on things all the time. I mean, it's interesting. How do we pick up on things? Mostly through what people tell us, language, some, some, somewhat through what we see. But we're, we're so language-oriented, and we, must, we, I think, often figure that, you know, babies aren't picking up on that much because they don't have words to represent their experiences yet, and, uh, you know, at times they seem so inert and just reactive. Yet we talk a lot about uh, body language. Well, when you think about it, you know, in the absence of having language, first of all, a baby and a mom are communicating from before the baby is born. They're com- they, they are so intimately related to one another, they're communicating on a cellular uh, level it, uh, with respect to all of the chemicals that are being released into mom's body, hormones, neurotransmitters, all sorts of things are, are happening in that relationship. Um, then when the baby is, is born, the baby is not an inert, uh, senseless creature. The baby has all sorts of senses. Um, uh, even Everything can be thought of as, as like a recording apparatus. Even the skin is recording experiences. So in the absence of language, um, whereas we may think that what we're doing may be, you know, going over a child's head or invisible or such, I think babies are attuned to subtleties and nuances in our physical actions, in how we hold them, the position we hold them, the pressure. The, I mean, there's so much that goes on in communication between babies and their caregivers. There is a discussion that all of these early experiences, every experience that a baby has is being stored in pathways along the brain. Every experience is coded along neurons, which are brain cells, that link up together to, to create a kind of a, a first form of memory, really. Well, that's certainly clear in the development of language, and you look at uh, people uh, who grew up in different cultures speaking different languages. They can't communicate because that initial experience for each of them was different. Yeah, well, and, and how hard it is really to learn language when you get uh, past a certain critical period when your brain is not primed to be receiving that information. Dana, I want to ask you about um, how the brain matures and develops in a child just as other parts of the body matures and develops and allows uh, the brain to think in different ways. But first, I want to tell our listeners that this week we're talking with Dr. Dana Chetical. Uh, the author of a new book called Parents in Charge, Setting Healthy 
Loving Boundaries for You and Your Child. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Dana, uh, tell us about how the brain physically develops and what it can handle as it matures. Well, the idea of, of brains is that they're born with all sorts of potential connections. And then over uh, the course of life experience, those um, it's like the pruning of a, of a tree where the, you have the, the strong branches that you allow to develop, and those are based on the recurrent experiences that people have. One of the things that excites me a lot about the idea of brains in a dynamic process of development over childhood anyway, and then really through the lifespan, um, has to do with the development of the front part of the brain called the frontal lobe. Um, this is the area that is responsible for, broadly speaking, something that I think is best referred to as executive functions. If you think about the executive in a company, this is the person who has to do the decision-making, uh, decide when to focus on one thing, when the focus needs to be shifted, whether it needs to be brought back, in what way, forecasts into the company's future, thinks about the company's past. So you can, I, I, in a way, have a little image of like a little desk chair, you know, the leather and stuff up in that frontal lobe. So what does this mean in terms of child development, and then what does it mean in terms of parenting? It means that young children don't have judgment. Now, this is not news, but this is a way of, of explaining why they don't have judgment. It's because the frontal lobes of their brains are not yet developed enough to be able to uh, permit them to have an understanding of themselves, for example, in relation to time. So your child, and you can definitely see this in the toddler years, there's no... There's no um, putting the brakes on and considering different courses of action when a toddler has an impulse. There's just thought, go. And then gradually up through early childhood, the ability to stop yourself and consider different courses of action develops. You know, it's interesting that in the baby books, when you look at it into the motor milestones, you know, when did your baby sit up? When did the baby roll over? When did your child learn to walk and run and throw a ball? Um, nobody, I, I like to think of this as a developmental achievement in the motor domain that is so important but not particularly celebrated, but it is really the development progressively of the ability to sit still and to stop yourself before you move. So then what a child needs to have judgment is a relationship to herself in, re in, in, uh, in, in relation to time. So a child needs to be able to stop herself. Let's say there's a decision to be made or, you know, should, uh, should she go for that cookie on the, on the counter that she's not supposed to have? So you go stop and then say, wait a second. Let me think back to the past when I did something like this. Oh, that was a couple days ago. Mom was really upset. If I do this now, I can see that she's probably going to be mad at me in the future or I'm going to get in trouble. And you can see how the the kind of sense of time and that there is a past and there will be a future and a child can see herself in relationship to it is so important. That's um, asking a lot of a child and in many ways asking a lot of an adult. Well, you know, we can't in a way ask this of children. Um, we can we can set about to help foster it, but we do have to recognize that children need to develop progressively in their abilities to um, uh, to do such things. So in terms of how we would be acting as parents in relationship to this information, let me give you an example of something that I think a lot of parents struggle with or people have seen parents struggle with, and this is the universal experience of going to the grocery store with a young child. Okay? We've all been there. We've seen people struggling, or we've been the ones struggling, and uh, it's not pretty. So, so a parent who recognizes that there is this lack of maturity in this, in, in this ability to think ahead and such um, 
is going to act differently than a parent who is not oriented in this way. So, for example, a reactive parent, a parent who's not doing the thinking ahead for a child, is going to just drive to the grocery store. The feeling of dread in that parent's stomach is going to grow bigger and bigger uh, as, you know, as they approach. They're going to go in. There's going to be escalation in some kind of bad behavior. Eventually the child has a meltdown somewhere. There's words. People are looking. It's a very unpleasant experience. However, a parent who's more educated about this kind of uh, developmental process in a child um, can recognize the need to kind of function as that child's frontal lobe. So this is what that parent is going to do. She's going to be more proactive. On the way to the grocery store, long in advance of turning into the parking lot, that parent is going to initiate a dialogue and say, you know, Jeremy, I'm remembering the last time we were at the grocery store, and I'm remembering the incident around the broccoli. You remember that? That was not good. We cannot have that behavior again. Here's what I expect of you. And that parent is going to lay out very clearly, I expect you're going to be a good listener in the grocery store. That means listening the first time I say something. I expect we're going to get through the fruits and vegetables, and you are not going to touch any of them. And if I don't get this behavior, you're going to have to ride in the cart. And then a dialogue can happen in the car. The mom can make sure that the child understands so what this does is you've now, you've now done for that child's brain what that child's brain wouldn't do for itself, and you've used the part of your brain that's mature in order to do it. You're going to get to the grocery store, number one, you are going to have better behavior most of the time. Number two, if you don't have better behavior, you have a plan of action for how to deal with it. And number three, in the process of interacting with your child in this way, I like to believe that you are fostering for later development in that child, the idea of being a think-ahead person, of being someone who can try to anticipate what he will come in contact with in a different circumstance and, and make decisions in advance. Dana, I'd like to take that concept and jump ahead in a couple of five-year segments um, mm-hmm. to a 10, 11-year-old and um, to a 15-year-old. Okay. Well, in a 10 or 11-year-old, it's interesting the, the times that you've chosen because those are actually correspond to periods of, uh, that are thought to be, have a lot of frontal lobe development taking place. Uh, 10 or 11-year-olds are more able to, uh, well, first of all, they have more life experience behind them, 10 or 11 years. They have a, a, an understanding of this very abstract concept of time, which is much better than a 5-year-old has. Um, I still think it is not a bad idea to be clear with children uh, at, at any age, really, um, in terms of what you expect of them in a different circumstance. And I think what you will see is that they can get into a more kind of complex, interesting discussion with you about, uh, you know, in, in the car in advance of things like that. You may not be having problems in a grocery store, but let's say you're on your way to, I don't know, some kind of a family function with such a child. And, you know, they, they may be thinking ahead and thinking of things that you didn't even consider, so they can bring more to the party. Um, that doesn't mean that you compromise your authority or that you don't ultimately get to, you know, make the rules, but uh, they can definitely bring things uh, to mind that you wouldn't necessarily have, have thought of. It's kind of like telling um, a jury uh, of people who have never been in a courtroom before uh, what will happen as the trial begins and progresses and concludes. You know, I think we all, to some degree, kind of like to have a little preparation, if possible. Now, of course, life, one of the things interesting about life, at least from my point of view, is it constantly dishes up surprises. So we can't delude ourselves into thinking we can always be prepared for what happens. But I think to the degree that we can be or that we can try to anticipate, it confers upon us a sense of control. It leaves us more options in terms of considering different courses of action in advance of being in the hot seat or being in a, in a circumstance. I think it makes us more effective people. 
Um, in fact, people who have problems in the frontal lobes of their brain are people who do not function well in society at all. And in fact, schizophrenia is a disorder of the frontal lobe. Uh, you know, it's complicated in a variety of reasons. But think of schizophrenic people, or I don't know if you know any, but they don't, they don't plan. They don't use good judgment. They don't um, have that relationship to themselves uh, in terms of time and, and, uh, and understanding. Um, in any case, the pro progressive development of this part of our brain is really what is responsible for letting us become executives um, in control of our own lives. And how about for uh, the 15, 16, 17-year-old child? Well, I would think that it's kind of uh, the same thing we just said about the 10-year-old, but even more so um, in terms of... Uh, Letting you know, it's interesting because one of the things about parents in charge is there are a number of people who've read it who don't have children, and they've heard me talk about it in one place or another, and they said, you know, I read your book and I, I just had the idea that it would help me in my business or that it would help me in all of my relationships, and they've read it and said that indeed it does, that it's not a bad way to function in life to let people know what you expect of them and open a dialogue and is you know does this work for you and and such. So you can, again, with, with your 15, 16, 17-year-old, you're still the parent. You still are the one who gets to uh, make the rules in the house. And according to how mature your child is and the amount of responsibility that uh, she has demonstrated that she can handle, you know, you're going to be um, tailoring uh, how much responsibility you give her. Dana, let's talk about boundaries and how a parent can thoughtfully control the boundaries that uh, eventually help a young person who then becomes an adult develop self-control? I think it's important to recognize that when we thoughtfully set and maintain limits on children, the control that we impose gets internalized by them, and that is the seeds that later become self-control in a child, something that I think is very much lacking in our society and uh, something that we need a whole lot more of. So this is what parents can do to help foster that in children, is to maintain limits. Now, one of the things that I think that parents struggle with is this very idea of maintaining limits. I think it's almost cliche to say no means no, but I think in many households it doesn't. And I think to back up, it's important to recognize that children learn the meaning of words according to how they are represented by parents and how, what parents do in relation to those words. Uh, children don't come into the world understanding the meaning of no. It's how parents portray that word. So if you are at the mall and your child wants another, and you say to your child that he can have one ride on that choo-choo train near the food court, and, uh, and he takes his ride and then he starts grumbling and you say, no, no more, and then he's raising a fuss and people are looking and you say, oh, fine, okay, just one more. What you essentially are doing is you are teaching your child that the word no means keep asking. When we talk about um, teaching a child something, uh, that the word no means keep asking. What are we teaching a child um, when the child is overscheduled and constantly doing something? You know, that's a, a current phenomenon in some communities, and this is the tendency to, to have children, you know, leave school and go to Kumon math and, and ballet lessons and piano lessons and gymnastics and this and that and this and that. So I think one of the reasons that parents do this, you know, nobody is setting out to do damage here. I think parents think that they're trying to give their children every opportunity to develop all these wonderful skills. The problem is that young children, just as we were talking earlier about a critical period uh, for language development, um, that there is a critical period during which children start to develop a relationship to their own minds when it is the brain's job to start helping that child come up with his own questions, come up with kind of different ways of answering them, think of 
big projects. You think about maybe five, six, seven-year-old children, and you see that their play gets more complicated. They can start doing a lot of represent, representational play where they're you know, playing a big game of school, or, you know, and it's sustained for a lot longer. So this is exactly what's supposed to be happening during that period of time in a child's life, and it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of downtime. Uh, the raw material for, for this kind of play is the time to be able to engage in it and some of the you know, Tupperware or pencils or whatever it is that children are going to want to use in their games. When we take this time in childhood and we intrude a great deal of external structure on it, meaning we put children in a bunch of scheduled classes, I think that rather than ending up with adults who have a lot of wonderful skills, my concern is that we are going to end up with a bunch of adults who can't think for themselves and who always rely on others to determine their fun. I've heard actually there's a new phenomenon when kids get together to play um, that moms and dads, whoever is hosting the, the, the playtime, feel compelled to come up with a structured activity. So instead of just letting kids go in the backyard, the parent will greet the, the, the visiting child with, okay, today we're going to be baking cookies or what have you. And sure, while it may be fun to bake cookies, that's not what children need. Um, I think of the analogy of, of animals raised in captivity who never learned to hunt for themselves. Um, I'm concerned that children who are overly structured at the time when their brains are supposed to be allowed to have some um, liberty of, of asking questions and being creative are not going to become adults who can think for themselves. Well, Dr. Dana Chittical, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you the question uh, that I ask everybody, and that is, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? An interesting book that I've read lately. Okay. I mean, there's a couple answers. One is the last book that I read lately, which was uh, The Bernstein Bears and, uh, what is it? The Bernstein Bears Get Stage Fright. Let you know that I'm a person with young children. Or I could tell you the book that I read as a grown-up book, which was not quite so recent. Which would you rather go with? Both. Both. Okay. The book that I read recently that was not um, a child's book, I think was the Seabiscuit book. So the reason we read the Bernstein Bears is because what my four-year-old likes to read. And um, I like the Bernstein Bears. I feel like they help children to master some of the typical struggles that children come in contact with. I think there's a couple of the books that might need to be rewritten because they're a little simplistic, like the Bernstein Bears deal with a new baby, kind of doesn't address a lot of the feelings that go along with that. But generally speaking, I think the Bernstein Bears are great. And the reason that you read Seabiscuit? The reason I read Seabiscuit is because it's the first novel I've had a chance to read in probably the last uh, two years. And somebody about, uh, whenever Seabiscuit came out, read it, said it was fabulous, and sent it to me and said, when you have a moment, you should read this book. Well, Dr. Dana Chittical, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Well, thanks for having me. This Radio Curious archive interview with Dr. Dana Chittical, author of Parents in Charge, Setting Healthy, Loving Boundaries for You and Your Child, was recorded in 2002. The books that Dr. Chittical recommends for young children are The Berenstein Bears, the book that she recommends for older people, like adults, is Seabiscuit. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. 
The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.